Please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me. Please turn with me to the book of Jude. This morning we will be finishing this letter, the short uh, but important letter, which will also finish a series that we began about a year ago, looking for faith during trying times. This morning we'll be looking at the final two verses. You can also find uh, the text on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's passage. If we look at this series as a whole, if we do a quick recap of what's brought us to this place, and we started in 1 Peter and then 2 Peter, and, and now we've been in Jude, we've covered a lot of topics, a lot of important topics for our lives, for the church today. Topics such as holiness, the major theme of 1 Peter, as well as sanctification, the role of husband and wife, qualifications for elders, growth in grace, and many, many more. But across all three letters and, and what binds them together and, and why we've done this series is that First Peter, Second Peter, and the writing of Jude gives us hope for living faithfully during trying times. And I don't have many more times to say this to you, but in case you've not heard, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the source of hope for living faithfully during trying times. My prayer has been that's been evident across this series, but in case it hasn't, or if you're visiting today, please know that He indeed is the answer. And because Jesus is the answer, it affirms he is willing and He is able to provide for you. It also affirms that there will be trying times, uh, which is the part we don't like to think about, but they will be. We will face trials. We will face difficulty. We, we will face hardship in this life. But just as much as that is real and that is true, so much more is Jesus Christ the answer. And another theme that kind of has flowed through each of these letters, and it's another way of looking at 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude, is this realization that not only is Jesus Christ the answer, but Jesus Christ is coming back soon. That the coming judgment for the unfaithful, for the false teacher, for the apostate, uh, for those that reject God and uh, seek to harm the church, that coming judgment will happen soon. That should give us hope as the believer. That should, um, we should look on to that with comfort. And we should cling to that day, that coming day, that, that, that reality that will be quickly upon us. That too gives us hope during trying times. These are the realities that are well worth holding on to. As we conclude a beautiful series, a series I think is very needed for the church today. And so with only a few words left, would you please follow along with me as we hear one final message of hope from our writer Jude. This morning I will read from Jude chapter 1. Um, I'll start in verse 24 and read to the end of the letter. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless, before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And just as the waters from heaven fall to nourish this earth and do not return void, but provide that which it needs, so too this day will the word of God nourish you and provide that which you need for life and for faith in him. Would you please go with me as we bow before the Lord in prayer and once again ask that he provide his blessing upon us today. Let us pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, as beautiful and as nourishing as the rains we recently received were to our land, to our plants, to our grass, so this morning I pray your word would be to the hearts of everyone here. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, as my brother has already prayed, would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we not only hear your word today, but receive it for our growth, for our encouragement, to strengthen us, to challenge us, to point us ultimately to you, to the one who is able to save us, to protect us, and provide that which we need in this life and in the life to come. Lord, I pray your blessing upon this time. I pray that you would give me the strength to proclaim your message this day boldly. And I ask it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Christmas vacation a few years ago, Lisa and I made our pilgrimage, if you will, down to Mississippi to spend some time with friends and family. Jack wasn't here yet, and Ethan was, I think, like three or four. I could be off on the years. We went to visit a childhood friend. Um, in fact, it was a gathering of several of us. It was my board gaming group. And we, through high school and college and even later in life, would get together either over the table of board games or online for computer games, and it really is what knit us together. And so we did so that night, and it was a large gathering that night, so we had to play a, a game on the, on the television. We started playing a, a Super Smash Brothers tournament to accommodate everyone. Tournament style works better. And everyone was happy, all of us together, us and our, our spouses, and we were having a good time, but um, Ethan wasn't having that great of a time. Again, he was young, but he was being left out. And he knew he was being left out. And so he goes to my good friend Bailey, whose house we were at, and um, in his way asked to be included. And Bailey is very accommodating and handed Ethan a wireless PlayStation controller and set him in his lap. And then we kept playing our game. You would think that would have solved the problem, but for the 80% of you that didn't catch what I just said, Ethan was given a controller to a different gaming system that was not turned on. And what my friend gave him he, that he thought would placate him and that he would believe, yeah, I'm controlling things, he knew, he understood, even at that age, I'm not in charge here. I probably should be, but I'm not. And you're trying to trick me, and I don't like it. We know that frustration, don't we? 
We know what it's like to feel that we have control, to, to feel that we have the ability to affect change, only to realize we're actually powerless. Almost as if we're playing a completely different game than what's going on. This can be frustrating, and, and many times in our lives we can be prone to despair, whether it's complications at work, whether it's um, in relations with friends, with family, when it's things not going the way that they should. Oh, but if I could just have a better say, if I could make change, if I could do this, if I could do that, it would be better. And we really can, can work ourselves up, can't we, to the point that we are left to, this is not right. But sometimes what we need to realize, we just need to go to the one who is in control. We just need to find the one who does have the power to affect change. We need to go to the one who has the right answers. As I was thinking about this, my mind immediately went to Mount Carmel. When Elijah confronted the false, false prophets of Baal, despite being fully convinced they were right, that they were worshiping the right God, that they had the right religion, and that they contained all of the power, that lengthy day, that lengthy day where they worshiped and they mutilated themselves and they prayed and they cried out and they offered sacrifices, what that day proved is they did not have power. This was accented by the fact that Elijah calls down fire from heaven. Oh God, would you reveal yourself this day? Fire falls from heaven. It consumes the offering, the altar, the stones that it was set on and the water in the trough and scorches the earth that was underneath. That day, the prophets of Baal found out what power was. They found out what it was like to see a God who was in control and who can affect change. And utterly, they were found in judgment and were judged to the death for their lack of belief. Well, this morning, we conclude the book of Jude. And as we do so, we find that Jude wants to ensure us. In fact, his, his final words, his, his precious few final words are written to remind us that the God he serves, the God that he challenges all of us to believe in, the God he points us to is the real deal. The God of the Bible is the one that's willing and able to care for his people. And what does this do but provide lasting change in the life of the believer and for the church? And because of this, that God, the one who is capable to do such things, is alone worthy of our praise. We'll consider this in two sections in our passage this morning. It will take verse 24 and then verse 25. Verse 24, we will see clearly, God can and will protect and purify His children. And then in verse 25, we will see again very clearly, God and God alone is worthy of our praise. And it's worth just stating as a reminder, all of this is set in the backdrop. Remember, the bulk of the book of Jude is a warning against false teachers, so even in light of false teachers, even in light of a false message, even in light of their false hope, their destructive tendencies, and their ability to lead those astray, these truths ring true. 
God can and will protect and purify His church, and God alone is worthy of our praise in spite of everything else we have read and we've heard. And so let's walk through these two verses, considering each of these and how they apply to the letter as a whole. And if your Bible has, a, uh, has the headings in there, um, as, as mine does, you may note that this section is labeled a doxology. A doxology um, is a declaration of praise from the people of God to God. This is different than a benediction, and I confess I have used these words as a benediction before in our service, but it's not exactly the same. A benediction is from God to the people, where a doxology is from the people to God. In fact, we sung a doxology earlier. We lifted up praise. We lifted up God's worthiness to Him and Him alone, the honor and glory. Because God is worth it. Because God is worthy. And Jude chooses to finish a letter, really a letter which you could understand as a, a preparation for war, with song. He, he ends this letter that over 20 verses, verses 3 through 23, um, is a warning and judgment against false teachers and our need to persevere in spite of them with singing. And that, that, that leaves us to ask, if you were writing to equip and strengthen troops for a mission to combat the enemy, would you end in song? Would, would that be the tactic that you took? Well, Jude did, and he did so for a particular reason. While the bulk of the letter is a um, section of warning, Jude understood well the emphasis can and must be Christ. We combat that which is false by pointing to that which is true. When we seek to live the truth of God's Word, when we seek to share it faithfully with others, and when we seek to use it as the offensive weapon that it is, the truth of God, we realize just how effective it is. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, in, in the armor section called the armor of God, he says this, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is an offensive tool in the spiritual battle that we are in. But why? Why, again, why is this our tactic why does Jude point people to God knowing that which is coming? Why not spend those precious few moments and giving us some more warning against false teachers, giving us some more preparation? Well, the reality is we can't win the war. We are incapable on our own to win. We can't stand against false teachers. We can't defend against their message. We can't protect the church. We cannot keep our children from stumbling. We, we cannot... Do any of these things that Jude warned about, that Peter warned about? But God can. God can and God does. And so why do we sing a song of praise to God at the end? Why does he conclude a letter, again, a, a wartime letter with song? 
because where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to turn to? Listen, listen to the... (laughs) These are so precious. I almost could preach a, a sermon on this alone. Now to him who is able. Let's pause right there. That's so powerful. Now to him, God. Let's be clear. God, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our triune God. To him, to God, who is able. This sets him apart from all other deities, all other religions, all other um, goals and ambitions in this world. Whatever people worship, whatever they want to be their God, it fails. It does not complete. It does not carry out. You're like the prophets at Mount Carmel, praying hopelessly. Unless you're worshiping God. The God who is able. Able to do what? To keep you from stumbling to present you blameless before the presence of His glory, and to do so with great joy. Jude lays out here three things that God is able to do. Let's look at each of these briefly. God is able to keep you from stumbling. Now, we need to be careful here. This word to stumble, it does not refer to sinning. We're not saying God will stop you from sinning. And that's tricky because elsewhere in Scripture, this word is used in that way. To stumble is to stumble into sin. But context is king. Context is so important as we read, as we study, as we interpret Scripture. What is the context of this letter? This letter is a warning against apostasy. It's against false teachers. It's against those who come into the church, claim to be a part of the church, look like the church, and then rip it apart with their false teaching, their false message, their false hopes, and their false motivations. What Jude is saying here is a very narrow use of this phrase. Jesus Christ has the power to keep you from falling into apostasy. One commentator says it like this, God does not promise that true believers will never sin. He promises He will preserve us from committing apostasy, from abandoning the faith once and for all. We can think about this very broadly in the acronym of TULIP, the five points of Calvinism, which broadly summarize Reformed theology the perseverance of the saints. We could see this as those whom God has chosen and set apart for Himself will finish the race. They will make it to the end. They will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, the words that he told Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. Jesus can keep you from falling permanently into apostasy. Now, note that, ultimate, ultimate apostasy. That's not to say you won't fall into sin. That's not to say that you won't fall into grave sin. 
What did we just finish? First and second, Peter. What was the sin of Peter? Apostasy. Peter denied the Lord. He denied him who he was and the fact that he belonged to him. But by God's grace, Peter repented of his sin and finished the race. He finished that which he started, that which the Lord started in him. This should be immensely comforting to us today, dear Christians. We have made it through 23 verses warning us about false teachers. And before that, we read through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, which contains even more verses. In fact, 1 Peter says the most damaging thing about false teachers is that they will be effective in what they do. Their tactics, their plans, their goals will work. And it will draw people away. And while this is a very serious matter, one that we should dedicate great attention to, we've taken a year to, to study it. Jude says, ultimately, God is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. He will not let you fall. He will hold you up. He will keep you firm. And note there the emphasis. You will not keep you up. You will not keep you from falling. You will not keep you firm. God will. And oh, it gets so much sweeter. It's not even that God does it, which that in and of itself is sweet enough, but He does it for a purpose. He's got a goal in mind. You are being preserved for a reason. And oh, how beautiful is this reason. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and then the second thing that God does, to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. Please understand what's being said here. God's motivation in pre pre um, preserving you, excuse me, as a Christian, is to present you to Himself. You are a present to God. If you go back to the Levitical law, or you just think about your knowledge of the Old Testament, and you think about sacrifices, you think about offerings, um, there is a requirement in them. Um, in fact, we can go to the very early words of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. If an offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. An offering unto God had to be perfect. Could not be scarred. It could not be deformed. It could not be malnourished. It was the choicest offering. And even then, you had to do it with a right heart. Now put that on to us, with this, which this passage does. God is preparing you as an offering to Himself. He has promised to keep you and preserve you, and all we have to do is trust Him by faith. This should be so encouraging to you today, dear Christian. God is working on you, and God is working in you. He, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is transforming you more and more unto His image. And one day, He will complete that process. 
which, by the way, cannot happen, take the text as a whole, if you're in apostasy. You cannot be a perfect offering unto God and also rebelling against Him, His teaching, His ways, and His methods. You cannot say, I am yours, O Lord, and I hate you, dear God, at the same time. And because both of those can't exist, and if you are in Christ, if you really are trusting Him by faith, then know this, by the end, one will go away. You will not deny Him. You will not reject Him. You will confess that He is Lord. It will happen. It's a guaranteed certainty. You will survive the attacks of the false teachers. The church, the bride of Christ, will prevail. Will prevail even when it looks bad. Now let's be clear here, as we have throughout this series, it will get rough. It will get rough for the church. It will become challenging more and more so. I mean, we look throughout Christian history, there were some hard times for the people of God. But ultimately, and and hear me this morning, if you hear nothing else, God is curating you to be an offering unto Himself, and God always wants and demands the best. You have a value that cannot be calculated. Well, it, it can. You are worth the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's your worth today. That's what you mean to Him. And if that was not enough, well, if that's not enough, come talk to me after the service. But if that's not enough, all of this is done in joy. All of this is done in joy. Let's finish the, 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 the verse. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now an important question here would be now, Aaron, I hear you. Who is receiving the joy? It's a, it's a bit unsure Is Jesus receiving the joy at His transforming us and presenting us? Well, the answer is yes. Or maybe, is it that we will receive joy at being preserved and kept until we're offered as a perfect offering unto the Father? And again, the answer is yes. Those of you that know me well know this is one of my favorite questions in all of Scripture when you get to affirm both sides. So let's think about this. Jesus receives the joy in keeping us from stumbling and presenting us blameless. We know this when we read passages such as Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is said to be the founder and perfecter of our faith. He endured the cross because for that which is or was before Him. And He did it in joy. What was that joy? Christ was glorified. Christ was glorified by serving as a sacrifice on behalf of sinners like you and like me. Christ 
is the one who created our faith. He is the one that anchors it. And he is the one that keeps us faithful until the very end. The joy that belongs to Christ is his willingness to save sinners, to redeem them unto what? To himself. One of the most profound things I can tell you this morning, in a real sense, if you are in Christ today, you are his joy. Do you think like that, Christian? Do you truly consider yourself the joy of Jesus Christ today? Do you realize how precious you are to God? Oh, what that would do to our mindset. Oh, what that, what that would do to our willingness to share and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Jesus willingly took on the cross knowing what it would provide. He did it accepting the pain and the sorrow because he made an eternal promise with the members of the Godhead to do what it would take to rescue sinful people from themselves. You are his joy. Again, God only accepts the very best. And if he's going to offer you to himself, he will make you willing to be that offering. And here's the beauty of this. Jesus is and does receive that joy, but so do we. It's appropriate to read this passage in such a way that we too exceed or receive this joy. If you go all the way back to, to where we started this series, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Why and how do we receive joy? We are saved, forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If that does not bring you joy, there's nothing that will. I don't know what season of life you find yourself in today, but I can promise you this, and, and please don't hear this as me being insensitive, this is merely the, the biblical truth. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, and I'm not minimizing that this morning, it pales in comparison to the eternal joy that God the Father will have in having you and that you will have in having Him. And you will have that now. You can have that now. And then for all of eternity. And we may find ourselves this morning going, wow, Aaron, that's a great deal. It's, and boy, that's uneven. And it's, it's kind of, we, all we get to do in that is receive. And that's all true. How should we respond? What should we do? We praise Him. I don't know, maybe we praise Him in song. Maybe we sing a song, a doxology of praise unto God. Now we start to see what Jude was doing. It clicks, doesn't it? Look at our, our final verse. In light of that joy, in light of that sal salvific work, in light of what God has done, in light of what He promises to do, the fact that He preserves us, protects us, and prepares us for Himself, we lift to Him that He and He alone is worthy of our praise. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. 
There is one God, the God of the Bible. This God is Lord and Savior. And again, I told you my, my time with this letter is short, but one more time, in case you haven't heard it, that Lord is Jesus Christ. That is who is able. Remember, this is what had been so important for Jude's audience. It was most likely uh, a majority Jewish in nature. They would have heard and understood the Old Testament. And this would have been big news for them. This would have been significant in their lives. This, this would have been worldview shifting to hear this and to see this and to believe it. Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is the one who saves. He came to serve as a sacrifice for sinful man so that they might receive eternal life. What a statement. And then again, to, uh, <laughs> the only conclusion after saying something so powerful, you could read this as a sermon, the only way we could respond and react is to praise God. Now, be careful here. Don't read this as Jude wishing. Jude is not saying here, Oh, God, if, if you only had glory and, and if you only had dominion and you only had majesty and you only had authority for all time. He's not saying, Lord, may you have these things which you do not. No, these are things God has and God expresses. Jude is simply pointing us back to God, praising Him. Because of these attributes, God saves. Because of these attributes, He calls us to persevere. Because of these attributes, He is who He is. He does what He says He can do. He has power. Not as someone with the wrong remote, but as someone who is in absolute and complete control and authority of everything. One commentator, I love what they say here, of the four qualities... Ascribing glory to God stresses His splendor. He is so great as the radiance of light. Majesty is His position, His power, His ability to carry out His sovereign will. And His authority is the fact that He has absolute right to do so. We don't hide this. This is, in fact, we're very open about this. If you look at our service, you follow this. That's all we're doing. We are giving glory to God. We are singing praise to Him. We are magnifying His name. We are lifting Him up. And then we go, oh no. <laughs> if that's who God is, then who are we? Who are we to stand in His presence? Who are we? We are people amongst unclean people. So we confess our sin. We repent. We turn from our sin. And then we hear His forgiveness. It's not my forgiveness, it's not the forgiveness of the elder that proclaims it to you. It is the Lord's forgiveness. There's a reason. The tagline in that section, God forgives us in Christ, is in Jesus Christ our sin are forgiven. He is the one who forgives. He is the one who has power. He is the one who deserves glory and honor and praise and majesty and dominion forever and ever. Amen. My time is short. I, I don't have time to go in, but um, you can see a very similar section of praise in the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, section 1, um, is a lengthy paragraph that scratches the surface on characteristics and attributes of God. Read that and then come to the same conclusion. Read that, know that it's just abbreviated uh, because one, you couldn't contain it all, and two, we don't know it all. And then go to God in praise. I encourage you to do that this week. I hope you see now why Jude concludes this series with a song of thanksgiving. I want to conclude this morning, and I I, I tried summarizing it, but I'm just going to have to quote it. Um, A fellow pastor and friend, uh, David Strain, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, um, he preached on this series, and I was listening through his sermon, and his concluding words were so powerful, I'm using them. Hear me? These are his, they're not mine. But I want to leave you with this. You see now why Jude sings. He sings because he looks up from the fight to the God who reigns. He sees his power and all the might of omnipotence marshaled in service of your preservation and the final presentation of your life before the presence of his glory, blameless at last. He looks up to heaven in the midst of the fight, in the midst of the struggle, Think of Stephen, as we've heard recently in Randon's sermons. He sees heaven open up, the glory of God shining down, and he can't help but praise him, proclaim him, and lift him up. And so he sings. Would this be our response as well? In light of who God is, in light of all that he has done, would we praise him? Would we praise the one who preserves us and prepares us for a lifetime with Him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, oh, how this has been encouraging to my soul this week. You knew that I needed it. And so if no one else is blessed by this, Lord, it is okay. But Lord, if people have heard these words this morning and their hearts aren't pricked, help them to search their hearts. Because I know that We are a people in the midst of struggle. We are a people in a hard season of life. We are a people in the midst of trials and conflict from the world, from the devil, and if nothing else, from within ourselves. Lord, would you draw us to you? Would you remind us of the good news of the gospel each and every day? Would we be compelled to respond in praise for who you are and what you have done? And if there be anyone here that does not know this good news, that this does not bring them hope, would they repent of their sin today, place their hope and trust in you, and receive eternal life. I pray all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.